Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkoy. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, November 8th through 11th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. As an astrologer and scholar, Carol Ferris brings a unique perspective to loss and grief. From an early age where her grandparents' deaths were treated as matter-of-fact, simple absences, Carol notes how she, as a child, was removed from the adulting business of death and dying. Later, in her 40s, and with the deaths of her father and her beloved aunt, Carol became aware of how different cultures and communities observe death with ceremony and ritual. More recently, Carol sat by her husband's side as he passed away at home. The experience taught her how to hold space for someone as they're dying. She recognized the privilege of this experience while still acknowledging her own sadness and its gravity. After her husband died, Carol explored a cross-section of mythology and astrology to help understand the state of her own grief. From there, she delved into the mythologies of Western, African, and Central American cultures and their tellings of the journey beyond our own physical world. She believes that a person's death is a very palpable and irrevocable loss, not only to the people who are close to them, but to the atmosphere and the world at large. In Carol's view, we lack resources and understanding about our place in the world when it comes to grief. She feels that as a result, we are dying, both as a culture and as a country. My own understanding of astrology is limited to a long-ago interest in reading horoscopes in the back of magazines, but it never went further than that. After recently being introduced to Carol, I started hearing her name constantly. It seems like everyone I know has had a reading with Carol, and I thought, I want to see what this is all about. I was curious to see what my reading would say about my own experiences with grief. Astrology is a language about nature. It's about the rhythms of nature. It's, well, it is a map of planetary motion. It's our experience here on Earth. So, since your birthday is in um, the, that arc of time between early autumn and early winter, it's the nature of, of that time to turn inward. Um, that the harvest has been brought in, it's been weighed and measured 
It's been stored. We, we are not really going to wring anything more out of growth and, and the upper world and the vitality of summer and early fall. So the sign Scorpio, things scorpionic, describe nature as it pivots inward and begins to think about protection and about the creation of new life inside the dark. So when you read popular things about Scorpio, you read about how they're intense and passionate and, and erotically focused and secretive. But that, those are top notes of a deeper nature that is interested in what's inside, what's below the surface of things, what happens when we turn inward and create a safe place for something new to evolve out of something that has died. So if that's the heartbeat of your story, which Sun in Scorpio is, then it's not surprising that your own nature would lead you to investigate what lies deeper in the world. And that it doesn't exclude eros or loss or death or, or magic as far as that goes. But what's interesting in your chart is where it's located in the chart, which is what's called at the midheaven, which means that a nature that is protecting itself so that it can develop in the deep, rich interior has to figure out some way to be a public person. So how do you be a, a, um, a person who's focused on the interior as an exterior kind of self? And that usually involves some kind of, of plan or persona or some way of protecting yourself or holding the intense emotional, your own intense emotional nature as a public person. And, you know, you yourself use the word guarded. I think that's one way that we could talk about a scorpionic kind of person. But um, but I think it's a little pejorative. It, it, it has negative connotations to be guarded, especially in a culture that says everything's supposed to be out all the time. But Scorpio is, is the integrity of holding a space so that new life can grow inside the dark. And that means you can't be all over the place. It's not sunny. It's not summery energy. It's deep interior energy. The other thing is, in classical Chinese medical philosophy, the times of nature are related to the organ systems, not only of the human body, but of the planetary body. And that time of year is related to the pericardium. And the body part, the pericardium, is, of course, the heart protector. So the uh, scorpionic people all share that sort of metabolic rhythm of the year, which is to protect the heart. Interesting. So that's a lot to, 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 <laughs> to swallow and to, to think about and to think that, you know, that's all within me. Yes, um, well, it's not only within you. It's I think astrology's great gift is we are in relationship to our world. We're we're not just material things walking around. That we uh, we have connection and we have relation and we have meaning, and um, and so astrology is not. It's not fortune telling and it's not fate. It's a topology that gives us a place to be, and and that doesn't mean it isn't a lot, <laughs> right? You know, and it doesn't mean that we can't elaborate on what what we observe, but but it it's really about how will how did we begin in the world? What was the nature of the world that we stepped into, 
And how did we make a place for ourselves to be in that time and in that geography? And then after that, it's how does all that move forward? How does that primary adaptation of our beginnings move forward? So, so how, how then, how then does looking at astrology um, help us understand grief and sorrow um, or, or how to, if, if, if astrology helps us to understand our place in the natural world. Yes. Then things die. Then things die. And our culture, we're learning how to say he died instead of he passed or he isn't among us anymore. All of the euphemisms that the West has developed, that North Americans have developed to suggest that there's, um, you know, that we, it's like we don't know the difference between the infinite and, and, and immort, immortality, that, that all of us, we could say, arrive from an infinite place and we experience being finite. And because it's part of, to me, it's part of what I now understand gives us meaning is to know this will end. And that doesn't mean that there isn't something that's endless and infinite that we can touch and know and that we're also in relationship to that, but that um, we will die, things die. And that um, it gives um, a kind of intensity and meaning to the life that we have here that deserves our full attention, and that when something dies, it deserves our full respect because it mattered. They they mattered. It mattered when we when they were alive. Right. So, I mean, do you think it's only our culture that has a hard time dealing with death? Well, I um I guess I haven't traveled all over the world enough to be able to make any grand sweeping pronouncements about it. But I think that um, that Western culture, in particular, and American culture, very specifically, um, is um, reluctant to for about endings, you know, and that a lot of the mythology of of American culture is there's always another morning, yeah, and there's always a second chance, and that you yeah. will be reborn, and that things are more glorious than now, and. You know, I grew up in the 50s, and the motto, there were two mottos in the 50s through, through advertising, better living through chemistry, <laughs> and progress is our most important product. And so the people who are in positions of power and authority who came up with that attitude are still, are, are still making a culture in which um, things are always in process and they don't end. It's like, it's like having the lights on all the time. It's like yeah. in, I go down into my basement sometimes and I see things beeping and whirring and I think that that's global warming. Right. You no, know? and so that idea that things don't won't stop and rest, not just die, but rest, that there's meaning to light and dark and that they 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 need each other that that rest is the complement to motion so that idea of that everything's always growing everything's always improving everything's always going to get better it flies in the face of of everything that our natural world tells us about what its true nature is interesting i've often felt that there's a lot of messaging out there that you know you can create your reality and um 
And I, to some extent, I do believe that if you have the privilege to pursue that. Absolutely. Because there are plenty of people on this planet that, I don't know how you visualize coming out of, you know, being orphaned because of a hurricane or, or uh, because of um, food insecurity or war, all kinds of reasons. And yeah. so, and so I've, I've had a challenging time fully embracing this idea of like, you know, law of attraction or, or, or these concepts that are, I think, very, very Western or very American. I mean, is this part of kind of what you're talking about? Yes. Too? Yeah. No, I, I I feel very lucky to have um, been born where I was born, to have the luxury of sequential thoughts. You know, it isn't that I haven't um, struggled or had to scrap or, or that I won't have to scrap again. I will, but I have health. I have choices. I I, I remember um, in the 60s, LBJ and, you know, the Great Society programs and and uh, I remember a professor uh, saying, do you know what poverty is? And what, what poverty is, is no choices. Right. And so I've had the luxury of choosing, and so have you. So, you're asking, how can I support the awesome work that's happening on the Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness podcast? Become a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have something valuable to offer our listeners, let's talk. We'd love to invite you to sponsor the show. When I had my reading, I felt like in some ways it was very validating to my experience. Um which was deeply emotional and, of course, um, occupied a lot of my thoughts um, ever since. But what I'm wondering is how do I, how do I apply that to my everyday living? Like, what, it, what is, like, why, why do I seek that out? Why, do, why does one seek out knowing they're the place they were dropped into nature? What's... Help me out. What do I do with that? <laughs> so I think people come to astrology for a lot of different reasons. So let me sort of expand the context and then bring it back to the personal. There are astrological languages in all great founding cultures, whether it's Mesopotamia, which is present-day Iraq, or China, or India, or the Mayan culture, or the incredible Native American culture of North America— the relationship of heaven and earth is a primary experience and in our origins. So in the beginning, watching the skies, not so much what are the skies telling us to do, but at when we see these skies above us, when we see this motion and these heavens, and we see nature is happening the way nature is happening, how do we govern ourselves? How do we align ourselves with time and place to prosper and be well? So in the beginning, astrology was primarily a language, and I, I, I don't forget this, it was written by men for kings. And it was very much about how, how 
should the king, how should leaders and rulers ally themselves with time to create prosperity for everyone? And what do what does the ruler need to do to model alignment with heaven's will in a way? So you don't get personal horoscopes until around 600 BCE, you know, so for three, four thousand years in all those cultures, it was very much about how will we live together, how will the collective body and in relationship to to millet harvests and migration of animals and rising seas and and um, lowering storms, how will we live with that and how will we all be well? So the idea, a modern idea of that is not so much I want more choices because I have more freedom if I have more choices, but in a way, what are my limitations? You know, what what is the nature of my nature and how can I... Um, doesn't mean that you can't go outside the lines, you can't color outside the lines like, oh, well, I could never be a hmm <laughs> or I couldn't do that. It's not in my nature to do that. But I think one of the great gifts of self-awareness and self-reflection is that you, you know your strengths and your weaknesses. It doesn't mean that you can't make something that's weak stronger, because we do have choice. And it doesn't mean that we can't um, emulate people that we see, embody qualities that we admire and that which we wish to make our own. But it's not only about how will we as individuals have a better life, but as a result of that, what kind of contribution can we make? And most of my clients, I'm, I'm very lucky with the people who come to see me. Most of the people who come to see me um, are are self-reflective um, contributors in their cultures to their families and want to um, not so much strive to improve or get better or be stronger or win as it is to how to how to live well here and and how, how does your mastery um, what's the right use of your mastery and and the benefit of your gifts so what I'm thinking about as you're sharing that and this idea back of the um, of astrology being for kings, I'm think I, I'm looking at how our society is sort of reconfiguring, like even the way we look at our workplaces today, right? Yeah. Like everyone, not everyone, of course, but so many more people today are these mi- micro entrepreneurial, you know, or solopreneurial. Yes. And that's just something we haven't seen. And I can, so now I'm seeing this power of like everyone, like everyone has kind of the power of, of King, just, just to reflect back yes, on that idea. Absolutely. It's the, it's the ultimate devolution. And I, that actually segues into something that you and I have talked about. And that has to do with the death of a culture. Because for really, not just in America, but for thousands of years, we have organized ourselves in a kind of top-down way, kings to, to um, subjects. And it reached its apotheosis, really, in the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s, and we're living at the tail end of that. So the idea of how we organize ourselves, not only to be prosperous, but to win, is, um, has brought us to a point where our, the structures that we've built don't serve everyone. 
And so uh, I think Brexit is a really good example of that. I was lucky enough to be in England for classes four or five times last year. And most of the people in my class were in their 20s and 30s and maybe some in their early 40s. They voted to stay. But they called the people who voted to leave unicorns. And, And it's pretty clear to the younger people, these are people who have this dream of empire and colonialism that they're just it just refuses to they die. Can't let go and, of it. No, and so the Tories, you know, they they want to hang on to that. But the younger people see that the, the the world is very different than that. So in our country, in our culture, um, I think that we're facing the same thing. This idea that we'll be great again um, is um, you know, I was just in China and China is prosperous. It's it's booming. And and so this idea that America is going to have to take its place in a larger world in which our organizational structures and productivity at the expense of nature is that that we're we're at a cusp point on on that right now. Like so something is dying. This idea about winning, being first, being right. dominant, you know, and we don't have a lot of models about, how, you know, uh, we don't have a lot of we to replace I. Right. So populism, it's fascinating to me because populism would seem to be a healthy thing when you, if you were just to look at a dictionary definition, but it seems like populism has been co-opted by this ideal of Let's maintain the power structure that existed. Well, I think, you know, anybody who sat on a committee <laughs> knows that, um, that you'll sacrifice democracy for efficiency. That, that's the old model, that it's more important to get things done than to be relational. Mm. So that, 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 I think, is the next shift, is not just how do we respect our relations with each other so that that everybody's involved, which is not efficient in the old model of thinking. But how do we stay in relationship to what bears us, which is the planet, and 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 to pay attention, come to come back to nature in a way, not to be a Luddite. I love my technology. I love my computer. You know, I I'm happy to be able to listen to music that I want to listen to. But I also know that. Um, going forward, um, that some th- some way that we're going to have to sacrifice some dearly held adaptation about productivity and efficiency if we're going to live here together. Yes, and that's hard. And there, you know, I'm th- this idea is not original with me. There's such wonderful thinkers out there in the world today that are proposing alternative models. You know, Gavin Newsom talking about the lawsuit that California has against the Trump administration, eloquent arguments uh, for a different way of thinking about mobility and about how, about how will we organize ourselves. So the ideas are in place. It's just we're in a just huge transition right now. Your input matters. If you have thoughts on this episode, check out the show notes to find out how to contact us. 
We'd love your feedback, suggestions, or just a thumbs up. What is the hope? How can we find the greatness in this world that is, or this culture, um, or this governance that's dying? Well, I'm going to refer to a, a stark lesson I had about two or three years ago. Um, some some very dear friends here in, in Oregon who work with Dr. Stephen Jenkinson out of Canada um, brought him to read college for a very large symposium on how how will we be with the with people's dying the undertaking of the death process um, the reality of it how to grieve and how how to not turn it into bromides or formulas but to how to really li- live with things the way they are and uh, Jenkinson, the Canadian Film Board, did a really amazing documentary on Dr. Jenkinson. Uh, it's called Grief Walker. And in a scene from it, he's talking about palliative care in North America. And there's a scene where um, there is a very small child, I, uh, maybe a three- or four-year-old girl, who is, who is clearly dying. And the doctors are keeping her alive mm. and are keeping her alive while she's suffering. Mm. And someone in the family has called him in. And there's a scene where he is um, in the hospital with three white-jacketed doctors. And, of course, he has uh, hair in a long braid and carries a staff with feathers on it. And, and it's, um, it's a cultural moment to see the contrast. And on a whiteboard behind him, he writes down three words. He writes down, hopeful, hopeless, hope-free. Mm. And he turns and looks at them and he says, hope is the enemy of the present. Mm. And I was in an audience of mostly counselors and psychologists, and a gasp ran through the room at that. And I remember feeling quite rocked by that. Hope is the enemy of the present. You know, it's just not American (laughs) to not have hope. But I... I understood, I think, what he meant, which is that if you only focus on what you wish to happen, you won't see what's really going on. Right. It isn't that you can't hope. It isn't that you can't have your eye on some other possibility or imagine some other outcome. But if you do it at the expense of what's actually going on in front of you, you will never pick a path that will take you to what it is that you want. So I think coming to terms with things the way they really are, not the way we wish they were, starting there, not just in terms of criticisms of, well, this is bad and that doesn't work and all, that's awful, but what is it that's actually before us is the prelude to... um, designing different structures about how we're going to live together. Yeah. Well, when you were sharing about Griefwalker, it made me think of Atul Gawande's um, Being Mortal. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, he's sharing, uh, from, a, from a doctor's perspective, a, a very similar idea about how, well, as doctors, doctors are, um, you know, they have the Hippocratic Oath, and their yeah. jobs are to you know, save lives. Yeah. And so 
we've medicalized dying in this country, which goes counter to the Hippocratic Oath. And so there's something inherently wrong with with people dying in hospitals. Yeah. And so and so that's where palliative care is is and and hospice, there's so much opportunity to look at that at what's happening there. Well, I'm I am not in any way expert about about the death and dying process. I have my own experience of it. And um I think in the spirit, in the American spirit, that we get to control all outcomes, that that choosing how we die and where we die is, mm, it's part of the fiction that we've been maintaining, that, um, that, that somehow because we have control over it or we have choice over it, it's not really going to happen, or it's only going to happen the way we want it to happen. Do you think that's why we as a culture can be so lost in the in in our grief because because we really get the the rug pulled what a surprise (laughs) right yeah no what a surprise and it does feel to me that in our society we go about our lives pretending that death can't touch us yeah and i don't know if that's our own mythology that we share with ourselves that you know we're untouchable or that um, invincible, we're invincible. immortal. Yeah, no, it's um, my own experience of my husband's death was was profound for me, and I often wonder if, and I, and I won't know until I'm around other deaths. But he died in a way that I imagined death to be, and part of that was because of the incredible teaching I had in Tibet and China, and the prayers that I was given to conduct the, to conduct the dying process. So, um, and now I'll circle back around to something I said earlier, because I've been thinking about this. Um, spiritual practices, whether it's prayer or qigong or yoga or meditation, when I be, really began to understand the idea behind Qigong, for example, I realized that its its practitioners and originators were not after Im- immortality. They weren't trying to live forever. They were trying to touch the infinite. And that a part of our opportunity of being alive is to both be finite and in our separateness touch what's infinite so th- that idea you know we have millionaires who want who are into cryogenics and who are trying to prolong life and trying to create immortality as a way to touch the infinite and I, you know good for them that's yeah. one way to do it and maybe they'll maybe they'll surprise all of us <laughs> and and the west really will be able to be immortal but but that idea of of that life is important because it's finite m- means that we need to live in relationship with what's here now mm-hmm. and i think that that um facing the reality of endings that things do end that loss doesn't unhappen and that you live in a world in which all the molecules have been rearranged that takes some getting used to i i had a client who said to me about 6 months after her husband died she said i you know i'm so clumsy she said i've never been clumsy before i don't know what that's about 
And I said, well, my own experience is all the molecules in your world, it isn't just that that physical person is not here anymore. It isn't like, well, they're not soaking up that space anymore. But all of our motions and our decisions and our natures are calibrated around a certain both psychic and material structure. And when that structure changes, our world changes. And we have to say the world is not the same anymore. That's really beautiful. It makes me, what you just said makes me think about your attitude when you go on a vacation. When you go on vacation, you really savor every moment. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, now, now that we have cell phone i mean everyone's taking pictures and propagating them all over the place but you know we're capturing these moments and we're like ah like eating them like dessert you know and um if we only lived our lives that way that's it that's it yeah yeah it matters you know now matters and if you think that there's always next, always next, always next, then now gets devalued. And now is all we have. And it's incredible that you've arrived to this place by studying the map of the hours. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, um, I grew up in northern Idaho, and um, wild is a march here. You know, we... uh, I was on a houseboat on a lake, and we had to pump spring, spring water, and we fished for lunch. And, and so I, I feel very, very lucky about that, to have grown up in nature's rhythms and in a, in a family in which our daily rhythm was really a function of weather and uh, temperature and geography, and the abstract our, our abstractions because of technology and again i don't i'm not knocking technology but to be abstracted away from time and temperature and place means that we that that the choices we make don't keep us aligned with time and and again i think that's one great gift of astrology is if it didn't do anything else to just say it, it matters wh- how long the days are, yeah, you know, and what is growing now, and what um, what is dying now. That having some respect for that environment and your place in that environment, um, um, it, it it rearranges all the molecules. Do you worry about the, ch- the this generation that's growing up? so immersed in technology and so removed from nature? Well, hmm, do I worry? I have a 21-year-old grandson, and he's immersed in technology. And, uh, and But I also see that these kids, kids, t- people in their 20s, adolescents, and especially, you know, I've been an astrologer long enough now that clients who were my clients back in the late 60s and early 70s have sent me their children and their grandchildren. So I see that um, people that are my age in their 60s and 70s who are very concerned about now and what's going on now because we grew up when better living through chemistry and how important progress was. What I see now is that the kids who are growing up in this, it's their world and 
they're coming to terms with their world in the way we had to come to terms with our mm. world. And you think about Greta, who is out there to, talking about her experience of the world. There are as many Gretas as there are couch potatoes. And so I'm actually... As many climate activists. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So I'm very optimistic about the future. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.